0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Casual Watch Talk. I don't normally post recordings of our live streams onto the podcasting channel, but we had such an interesting conversation last night. We were joined by Nicholas from Fears, Dave from Scottish Watches, Pete from Pete McConville's channel, and also uh, Todd from TikTok Talk. We had a fascinating talk about what makes a watch good value. And it went in lots of different directions. So I've exported the audio here. I think you'll find it interesting. The audio quality is, because it was a live stream, is not as usually as high quality as you'll get on these podcasts. So apologize. There's also a few little clicks and stuff when I start talking, but that does dissipate as the recording goes on. So very interested to hear what you guys think of this. Let us know over on the Facebook group. Appreciate you listening, and I hope you enjoy this export from the live streams, which are Tuesdays at 7.30 Eastern US time, and Sundays at 4.30 Eastern US time, or 8.30 UK now that the clocks have gone back. So here you go. hi everyone welcome to casual watch talk sunday social and um, i'm here with my panel i'm here for uh, with uh, todd from tiktok talk on instagram dave from scottish watches uh, pete, pete from pete mcconville's channel and then we've got nicholas from thea's hey nicholas hi there
1: thanks for having me how are you all
0: all good yeah. all good we're just doing the wristwatch check, Nicholas. So uh, we'll, we'll give you a second. Uh, but Dave, what what are you wearing?
2: Uh, I what am I wearing? I'm wearing the Oris Full Steel, the new issue one, which is the Holstein edition from this year uh, or this year, yeah. last year. Can't remember. Uh, the smallest uh, Oris in the world. When in, in fact, usually Oris go the other way. So this is thirty six millimeters. So it's a little toty thing. Oh, wow. Um,
0: go, on, Nicholas. What are you what are you wearing? Uh, so I'm wearing
1: one of the new. There's Brunswick Forties that, that. that we launched uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so yeah, I've been uh, I've been enjoying wearing one of the prototypes for the last uh, the last month or so. But it's really nice to be able to wear it and show it and actually not have to keep pulling my sleeve <laughs> down when I bump into people in the street.
3: And <laughs> um, Pete, you're up next. What are you wearing? Uh today I'm wearing my Brightling Super Ocean Forty Four. Um, oh, yeah. It kind of fits with some of the discussion we might be having today. But more on that later.
0: And more of a mystery, what what took 20 minutes? Your bezels are set to 20 minutes.
3: (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) I I don't understand people that put their bezel back to the zero. I don't understand that. I never do. I use my bezels pretty much every day and I don't understand why you would reset it to zero.
4: And as a, result, to be... has... as
3: a result, Seiko has... OCD. Here's the best bit about never setting your bezels back to zero. I never have Seiko QC issues. <laughs>
5: <laughs> That's a true story right there.
2: Yeah.
5: So, so, next. so, so I've been, I'm wearing the watch. Okay. This is my first sort of expensive watch and I'm like I think the only champion around that loves this brand but Armand Nicolet I don't know if I could get the lighting right um it's a chronograph it has open case back it's a 49 jewel movement it is not a Valjoux I'm not really sure what is in this thing but I absolutely love this watch awesome
4: True.
0: um, and I'm wearing my uh, my date just coming off the back of a triumphant review on my channel. It's the so far the best performing within the time period review that I've ever posted on my channel. So, thanks everyone who watched that. Um, so before we kick it off here, just say hello to a couple of people. So, hey, Bill K, uh, Kevin, thank you very much for the email. I watch those, uh, all about your volunteer work. Very interesting, thank you for that. Mark says. He was pleased to see the brunswick in new york so there you go um, thank you for
1: stopping by the stand mark appreciate
5: that
0: yeah i mean b- before we kick this off nicholas how, how was wind up for you because we, we i've spoke to mike france about it and i have spoke to um, mike at zodiac about it and rave reviews from them
1: oh yeah i mean it was it was my first wind up exhibiting um i've been as a like a visitor to quite a few of them before and so I had an idea of what to expect. But this year it was in a new location, which was much bigger and a, a vast upgrade as a location goes. Um, but there were going to be many more brands. So I was like, oh, is it going to feel cramped? Is it going to be overwhelming? Um, but it was superb. It was absolutely superb. So I was there with um, Collective Horology. Who are one of our fiercest North American retailers, and they took the stand. And I was there basically to be like the sprinkles on top, like just to add a little pizzazz to it. But it was incredible. Basically, for three days, it was a non-stop stream of people. So usually at Windup, they it, previous um, exhibitors have always said, right, Friday is when you get all the hardcore collectors and enthusiasts. Saturday is just loads of people coming in off the street who sort of know a bit about watches, but not really. And Sunday's really quiet. Not this year. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all three were just absolutely full of enthusiasts and collectors. And it was incredible. Like, yeah, it was really good. And I know talking to all the other brands, they had an incredible show. Um, I, you know, being a Brit abroad, I every single night organized for all the British brands for us to all go out for drinks. And it was great because it would start off with a, come on guys, just come for one. No, don't go back to your hotel It's 6 p.m. Let's go for one. And I think the earliest I got back to Brooklyn was about 1.30 in the morning. So, you know, we, 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 we did it proper. Um, but yeah, the other big thing, and I wanted to say a, a, a huge thanks to um, a lot of the people who watch um, this live is how many people came up to stand and introduced themselves and said, right, I've seen you on a few of the Sunday lives. You know, just want to come by and say hello. Well, thank you so much for doing that because when you're meeting literally thousands of new faces, you know, one after the other, it's really nice to meet someone who, you know, is then referencing stuff where they've watched you or or chatted on the comments. It was really nice. It was kind of, even though, you know, everyone knows everyone online and not in person, um, it was kind of nice to put a friendly name or a Instagram handle to a to a face so thank you for coming by but yeah great show if you ever get the opportunity to go to one of the wind ups cannot recommend it enough i mean from a personal standpoint i managed to get off the stand um for the odd sort of half hour and just go around just completely overwhelmed by how many watches there were to try on and see um i even to watch for myself while i was out there yeah. from the stand uh, from the show um which was uh yeah very exciting i don't get it for a few more uh weeks because it's a new christopher ward that launches this coming week so uh yeah you probably know which which one this is sam but uh
0: <laughs> well yeah i certainly can't say what it is but yeah i interviewed <laughs> about it and and my my interview with him which was you know always fantastic was um is going to be launched or when it launches but yeah it's gonna suffice to say i think it's gonna it's gonna be quite the launch
1: well he managed to take some money off me at the show to uh, pre-order one of them so uh, so that was that was exciting but yeah great show highly recommend it if anyone gets a chance go and see it
0: definitely awesome awesome well our subject for today is well i've titled it what what makes a watch good value but before i introduce it i did steal this topic off Pete. So Pete, I don't know if you want to
3: introduce it and you're thinking. Actually, I do. I almost like to go last in this discussion because for me, I don't, I don't value value in watches. I think it's miss for me. My microwave has value. These, um, the tires on my car have value. My, my, Washing, my washing machine and my vacuum cleaner, they all have value. Um, I'm after bang for buck. I want the best specs for the least money. When I go for luxury, value goes out the window. The idea, the idea of luxury is almost toxic to the idea of luxury. Um, and so I, as, for me, the number, where it comes from for me is, and that's why I said I've, I've dragged out the, the Brightwing. You see on the on in watch discussions so often, you know, like why would you buy the Breitling? It's only got an ETA movement when for the money, you could get a pelagos, which is a completely different watch, completely different aesthetic, looks nothing like each other. And what that tells me is that people are willing to settle for a watch they don't really like because they feel like they're getting a good deal. And for me, that's how I buy a microwave oven. So it's, I, that's where I wanted to come from and say, I understand I'm kind of different. I, do, I don't see a lot of people talk about that. But I think value is one of the most toxic things in our, in our language. And it's a great way of making sure that I've, I've got a strong contention that the reason so many people flip watches is because they bought the value proposition,
5: not the watch they wanted. Well, uh, let's just start with a question for that (laughs) supposition. And that would be, (laughs) is, is luxury all watches then because we really don't need them? Or is luxury a luxury product?
3: I generally say luxury is
5: all watches. Okay, well then that's a different... Co- okay, that changes the way I re- I'm responding gutturally to your, <laughs> your statements because it, that, that's two different things because for me, the opposite, it's not that I'm looking for value, but I'm probably everything that curls your hairs, Pete, I like to experience watches, but I don't know that I'm actually going to keep them. So I like to make sure that I can, if I'm not happy, I can move at it and not take a huge bath on that watch but that doesn't mean that i thought that luck watch was luxury like that 300 400 seiko isn't, isn't luxury to me it's but that's a different paradigm i don't know
3: yeah it, it is interesting and and you get this circularity of argument what you said was i wasn't sure if i was going to keep this therefore you know i didn't want to over invest therefore i wanted to look at value but then keep following that circle around. And it says, so in other words, you bought a watch, not because you loved it, but because you thought you could resell it, which amplified the likelihood that you were going to sell it.
5: Potentially. I, I think uh, the, the problem is maybe where I am geographically, I don't have the opportunity to maybe experience all the watches that I happen to see in person. So I, I need that opportunity to get it in hand and see if I do fall in love with it. like this one. I wasn't sure I was going to love it. And this one's never leaving my collection because I love it. But I've had others that I thought I loved. I have one right now that I chased and it was like, I wanted it and it was expensive. And now I don't love it. I can't (laughs) get rid of it fast enough.
0: (laughs) Uh, Roar of the Tigers put here, the Oscar Wilde quote, "Uh, nowadays people know the price of everything but the value of nothing. So I think we've we've gone down the price kind of gamut here haven't we where we're talking about (laughs) value associated with what a watch costs um i I think of it that way as well although if we're thinking of value as in what it means to me then you know i've got a a, you know 30 year old timex that my grandfather had that's probably more valuable to me if you if we're thinking of the microwave analogy it's probably more valuable to me uh because of the memories that it holds than than its actual cost but I guess, um, I mean, I've got an example of a watch that I think is poor value because I think about the components and everything. But before Mm. I dive into that, does anybody else want to chime in? I don't know, Dave, what do you think on this?
2: I guess it depends how you define or what definition you're putting in value, I guess, ultimately. You know, value can be monetary for sure. So, you know, on that basis, you could regard any stainless steel Rolex as a value proposition because it will generally sell for more than you paid for it. So if that's your... You know, arbitrator. Then fine, that's going to be good value. If value is what the product brings to your life, a la microwave or a Hoover, you know, or a washing machine, then you could probably find it difficult to say any watch brings value because yes, it tells the time, but there's so many ways this in this modern world you can tell the time without having a watch. Or if value is something that it associates to you with memories. I think for me, it's a bit like some people value buying things with their money or some people value spending their money on experiences like holidays, etc. It just depends where your kind of, I guess, definition of value comes into the equation. And also, you know, luxury is also, it's a fluid point depending on your means and or, you know, if you're a billionaire, there's very few watches are without out with your remit, whereas if you're on minimum wage, even a moderately priced luxury watch would be regarded as a true luxury. So again, it really just depends where you where you want to point value.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, isn't it? Because yeah, depending on where you are, you know, value a luxury could be, you know, clean water supply or something like that. I guess if you if you're looking at that quite simply, or the access to you know, access to food um i don't know nicholas what do you what do you think on this one so for um, me
1: i uh, value is abs. for me i find it absolutely linked with a price but it's not about saying i don't know i'm in, in britain i'm always lambasting the fact that everyone always thinks value for money is the same as something being cheap um you know, certainly from, you know, living up in, in, in Yorkshire, everyone's always wanting to get the you know value for money. But actually what's interesting up there is everyone thinks Yorkshire folk are cheap. They're not, they're frugal. They're willing to pay more to get something that will last longer and is a better quality. And whereas down South, value for money just equals cheap. And I think, you know, looking at it from a broad spectrum, that's where I start. So then I look at it in terms of watches and you mentioned briefly sam about components i for me i don't think it's about components at all because i see and know the number one large cost that goes into every single watch we all wear and it's labor mm-hmm. it's the human element so when you talk about finishing on a movement that's being controlled by a human controlling that machine programming it when you talk about you know the finishing on a case when you talk about the assembly You know, when you're talking about all kinds of things, it's all to do with the human element. So whether a watch is made, you know, in Geneva, or whether it's made, you know, in a province in China, the human cost is always going to be the largest amount. And so therefore, you distill it down and going, is the price I'm paying, how does that equate to the amount of human labor that has gone into making this? So, you know, if something costs more, and you can see that you know this is—it's the hand finishing, the expertise, the, the quality of the finishing, great. But the value is the—it's the relationship between it. It's an equation. So you know, for example, Rolls Royce—you know, their cars are incredibly expensive. They don't make a huge profit on the cars because of the huge amount of labor that goes into it. So. In that eye, I would say, well, actually, you're getting value for money. The equation, there, there, there is an equation. And then, you know, I've got a degree in economics, but I'm not an economist. So I can't even pretend to say I know what that equation is, because actually that equation is something we all determine up here. Yeah. And also in here, if I stand up high enough, you can see my heart, <laughs> um, you know, but we we know it when we see it but it is that equation and that equation is what we apply to a watch costing 50 pounds or 50 bucks or fifty thousand pounds but that for me there is an equation but that equation is different for every single person but you can feel it as the scale goes up
5: yeah
0: so you say yeah it's interesting it's more of a feeling than actually a like a checklist that you that you do in your own head on things
1: oh yeah i i absolutely and i'm you know, i hate to keep bringing it back to cars but it's it's the same sort of thing of going you know yes if you want to buy a car because you know it's going to do this miles per gallon it's got this liter size of boot it, it can carry this many people it's got all of these things fine you know but then you'll suddenly go oh my goodness i can get a second hand x brand that i've always wanted for only this amount of money that's it. I mean, you know, take the car that I, I, I was a few minutes late joining because I've just done a four and a half hour drive from London in my Cadillac. And I love my Cadillac so much. Like oh. it, it just brings me so much joy. But it's from 2008 and it cost me four thousand pounds, which is a lot of money for a lot of people to spend on a car. But when you consider it's a five meter long V6 CTS with all the luxury bells and whistles, to me, in my equation, that feels like a lot of car for the money. That feels that feels good, um, and I didn't buy it because it's reliable. I bought it because of its emotional emotional value. I'm getting a Cadillac for four grand. You know that's that's the balance. I've t- I've spoken here before about my Cradle. That cost me four hundred and fifty pounds, but I own a Cradle with the beautiful finishing and all of that workmanship for only four hundred and fifty pounds. You know it's. It's a weird equation, but it changes all the time, depending on what you're looking at. But I think it's not something that my equation won't be the same as, as Dave's. It won't be the same as Pete's, et cetera, you know.
5: The car is the an interesting, a different analogy, though. I had a friend who worked at a BMW dealership, and he ran into this a lot because you can buy a, a used or secondhand BMW pretty affordably in the U.S. The labor and the maintenance of that car costs the same as the brand new one. So he would often tell people, if you can't afford a brand new one, you can't afford a used one. <laughs> so so there's that is a, a consideration. And I think that could be a factor even in the car, in the watches, you know. Oh no. If, if I kept... that, Go ahead. That,
2: like like you said there, that's exactly right. You know, there's certain, for example, not name them, there's certain very well regarded independent watch brand in Switzerland that the 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 name might have a resonance with some people that's all I'll say but that watch needs a remarkable amount of maintenance to keep it running in a orderly fashion that will take a huge amount of expense and a huge amount of time of you not having that watch but people think they're amazing value because you can sell them for two or three times what you paid for it but good luck keeping it in working order whilst you own it so is it good value or isn't it? It is if if your sole end is buy and sell immediately, but if you want any enjoyment out of it, then prepare to fall into the sink of uh, debt in terms of servicing and just the emotional detachment of not actually having it for long periods of time.
3: That's actually a slight diversion from the idea of luxury, but that story, Dave, really resonates with me. On um, Saturday, I caught up with some watchmates, and I was far and away the poorest man at this table. And there's all these independents and really high end watches being passed around, and uh, a lot of them were had been this the individual watch had been owned by a number of people at the table or been passed like to their friends. They'd been bought and sold, and one of the things that's most interesting is it's a rite of passage. That every, buy, every person who buys it has to send it back to um, Switzerland, have it repaired, and then, then they operate for a while, and then they get so jack of it, they sell it to someone else in the group. Hmm. So yeah. a, lot in, a lot of people have got to experience some pretty high-end independence for a while.
2: Yeah, and then, you know, you could argue the further that goes down the line, the less value it becomes because at least the uh, kind of differential between the service cost and the actual price of it uh, is diminishing generally in a watch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you, you, you. I just totally thought, you made a great point there about this. The, well, you didn't make a great point about the servicing. You made a, an eye-opening point about the servicing. <laughs> I, I had a Omega Speedmaster that I wore for year, 10 years. I wore it to my wedding, all major events, you know, meeting my wife and everything. And, um, and I, it, I sent it to get serviced and it came back looking like it was absolute. And I, it, it looking like it was absolute brand new and I'd never seen it new. Cause I bought it by, and it, I just, it just flipped me. I just couldn't, it wasn't the same. It didn't have the same like emotional value to me. It was so bizarre. I had to sell it. I sold it in the end because then it became a, a fine a, uh, it became all oh, there's money sat in my watch box now because I'd, I'd bought other watches mm-hmm. whilst it was getting serviced and stuff like that so it had lost its kind of value to me even though you know I, because they, they'd kind of taken all of the scars and the scratches and everything like that that I'd that I'd put on it so I suppose that's an interesting uh, <laughs> interesting thing as well uh, I should have asked for them not to polish it but
5: it creates an interesting uh, other conversation too kind of along with I don't know, maybe what Pete was saying, because I don't know how many times I've seen in a group, all these groups on Facebook, how many people have been like, oh, my dad had this Seiko for 50 years and never serviced it once. And you start going like, wow, these watches are robust. They have unbelievable stories that keep going every other time. And these people just like wear them, smash them, beat them up, nothing ever happens. You start to go, now there's substantial value in a watch that was a hundred dollars. It's incredible Uh, yeah i know it's not um, a microwave but
0: (laughs) (laughs) we uh, you know I, i had an example that i might show of a watch that um it's not an expensive watch well it is expensive but it's when i was thinking about this discussion i was thinking about about i automatically think about value for money probably similar to you nicholas and there's a watch that this is what i was thinking of so there's a watch by Luminox, and I reviewed this watch, right? And it's uh, it's a quartz watch, and it's seven hundred and forty-five dollars US, and even secondhand they're about five hundred. But the actual watch itself, its components are very. Like cheap, so I found like a similar crystal on on you know AliExpress for twenty one dollars. But the real kicker for me is that the movement in it is like a Ronda three hand quartz, it's so like twenty dollars worth. So there's probably I don't know unless the case is worth five hundred dollars. There's probably about you know a hundred dollars worth of components and everything. So but but. Yeah, it has like, a hundred, you know, many five star reviews. And I, I, even on my video, there's a lot of people that commented about how much they like it. So it's like a weird parameter between value to, to value. When I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this the component value is quite low. But then everybody else, you know, people who have bought it and commented on it have realized that actually to them, the value is quite high. Because it's you know robust and they like the brand and they buy into that kind of um yeah.
3: It's interesting doing that kind of breakdown. A job I had once was um to look at products and then try and deconstruct them and figure out what their price was. Um and it's an interesting game because you can kind of do that once you start getting some, you know, some industry norms. Um so you look at that. Product that for you know $750, and then you say, Well, let's let's make it nice and round and say 30% markup for retail, so now it's costing um $500. Then you say, Okay, uh, this is a company let's just say that spends 20% of turnover on marketing, so it's now a $400 watch. Then you say, Um, okay, so we've got to spend, um, oh, by the way, that. First markup was the markup just for the AD, not the markup for the for the the maker. So he's got another you know twenty or thirty percent on top of that. So now we're talking about a three hundred dollar watch, and then he's got to pay like Frederick from HR and Frida from finance. So it's take another twenty percent for all of that sort of stuff. Then you start saying we've only got 200, 250 dollars to play with to buy those components. Not to mention, you've still got to buy, as Nicola said, you've still got to buy the guy who bolts it all together. Um, it's, I think it's a mistake to think that there's uh, that kind of hard line or it's a mistake to think that there's uh, a close correlation between the, um, the cost of the bits and the final price of the product. There are so many filters it goes through first. Yeah, It's a really scary idea.
2: Yeah, aside from just the constituent parts, that's actually a small percentage of of any consumable consumer product that you buy, the unseen costs that need to be immortalized into the product. And unless you are having a product, most luxury watches, the numbers are tiny. In real global terms, they're tiny. You know, Apple make millions of iPhones every year, and it's still an expensive product. And that's got all of those costs immortalized into it. Relatively speaking, most watch brands make a thousand watches, a couple of thousand watches. You know, that's what we're talking about in real terms. And you've got these huge development costs and hidden costs that have to be pushed into that product as well. And that's what most people don't see.
3: Yeah. And the other thing, particularly if you're making original designs, if you're like putting yourself out there and trying stuff, then you also have to make enough money on your winners to pay for your losers. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if you're San Martin, you know, you don't have to do that. You just wait and see what other people made that won. And then you just, you basically, it's like, it's like driving to the finish of a marathon. You basically just drive to the finish Pick up your medal as you run across the line. Um, And, you know, you don't have to do any of the hard work. But if you're someone like Seiko, you know, maybe a third of your watches didn't sell well. So you have to make that money back from the watches that do sell well. There's one other
1: thing to consider that, um, you know, I see people gloss over very quickly is it's the after-sale costs, you know, spare parts, being able to do warranty, because I, I had a chap come up to me on the stand at windup uh, last weekend and you know, we're chatting about watches and you know, the thing of value came up and he, he, you know, he was showing me a watch and he said, Oh, I love this watch, you know, it's such good value for money, that's great. And I saw the brand and I was like, Oh, okay, yeah, no, that was it wasn't Kickstarter, but it was like, you know, they they launched and their big thing was about you getting a lot of watch for your money. Great, wonderful. And you do get a lot of watch for your money until the company went under a year later with no spare parts, no after-sales network. So if that watch falls on the floor and gets smashed, he's either going to have to get a bespoke crystal made for it and handset, and, you know, basically there's no after-sales. So you're, you're, you've got a time-limited product. That's when you go, really, is the value for money there? Because there's nothing to back it up behind it. Just something yeah, to bear and-
2: that, that that's a great point you know and that's where some of the let's say the big brands out there you know the omegas of this world etc but people give a hard time you know the automatic assumption that there's 20 or 30 percent discount to be had but they do actually look after their customers as much as people like to knock them hard i was speaking to someone last week who bought a speedmaster dropped it in his kitchen floor hard tiles smashed the crystal and he said, "Oh, I'm, I'm gutted. I'm going to have to sit in it for ages till I get the money to repair it." And I said, "I said to him, take it into a boutique and just be honest with him about ha- what happened. And you'll probably be amazed what happens." And he went in and he said, "I'm an idiot. I bought this nine months ago. I dropped it. I broke broken the crystal. No problem, sir. Give us the watch." Six weeks later, your watch is ready. Okay, how much do I owe you? You don't owe us anything. They took it back and they fixed it for him. Wow. And they just said, Amazing. "Just be straight with us, and you get one go on a new watch from us." If you do something <laughs> stupid, we'll look after you. <laughs> and you know yeah. that that that's value.
5: That's huge. That,
0: that, yeah, yeah. And um, watch Chris has joined us. He was in the comments. So Chris, what what's your uh, what's your view on this?
4: Um, hello everyone. How are you? Thank happy you. Uh, happy Sunday. Um, well, I mean, I, I have a watch on today that I think a lot of people. I've done videos on it. It's um, Oxen Junior. You Guys, are familiar mm-hmm. with this watch? Very cool brand. A lot of people flip out about this brand. I get tons of comments on videos where I featured it, and <clears throat> I mean, it's a great five titanium watch. Um, what's the value? Why is it so expensive? Why is a watch with an ETA twenty eight twenty four cost eighty eight hundred dollars? It's a lot of money for a watch that, you know, on the face of it should cost, you know, if we're talking about micro brands, you know, uh, under $1,000, right? It's really not that complicated. The the dial isn't really finished. The case isn't finished. You could see the machining marks. So what's the value in it? You know, really, the actual inherent value of the parts don't really actually uh, add up to the cost of the watch what they're actually charging for it it's really who's making the watch it's the labor that goes into it. it's the idea behind it um you're part buying the brand even though it's completely unbranded the only area that it's actually branded is on the strap so it's it's really it's very subjective and and i like that's a perfect example of a brand that you either see the value or you don't it doesn't you know you can see the value in, in a san martin which i also do i see the i see the value in those watches because you're getting a pretty good watch you're getting a really well-made watch for you know not a lot of money and they do try and make their own designs and that is really hard what pete was saying it's really hard for a brand to come out with something that's a little bit out of the box not something that's an homage to something else it's, Costs a lot of money to produce that, um, producing cases, whatever they need to do. It's going to cost them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and it could just be a flop because you're trying to do something different. And this is something kind of different. And when people see it, if I show this to someone who doesn't know watches, they'll look at me and be like, "Oh, that's a nice watch. What did that cost you? Hundred bucks? Two hundred bucks? You know?" And uh, no one knows what it is, and. I kind of like that. I kind of like that no one, absolutely no, no one knows what this watch is. Um, and I guess that's the value in it for me. My wife def- definitely does not understand it. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't really understand me. I don't think. Like, no, I'm joking. But you guys know what I'm talking about. So uh, uh, that's that's kind of it for me. And I see value in, in, in vintage watches. I see value in...
0: Yeah, mm. micro that's a great
4: brand.
0: point. Homages, so. Yeah, maybe is that the curse of the micro brand where it's, it has to be a price where it's competitive or that it's going to spark people's interest, but also they have to, to your point, Nicholas, they have to price it right to make sure that there is some longevity. Like, it's not a one-hit wonder where they've, they make their money and then there's not enough in the pot to keep, to keep stuff service you know to keep stuff going well it's
1: keep saying servicing you know you've got to pay to to you know obviously cover the cost of the watch you've got to pay to cover the cost of buying in materials to build the next batch of watches you've also then got to i mean development like where do new watches come from you know they don't just come out of this magic you know money tree you know that's one of the things when you break down there is a lot from one watch sale how it feels it's not just on marketing and things like that it You know on raw components you know you know if you're buying unless everything is done on pre-order right you know if everything is get everyone to pay up front but if you want to get into the model where you go no we're going to have part we're going to have watches ready ready to sell straight away i mean that takes a long time that can take years for a brand to organically get to a point where through cash flow they're able to do that um and i think you know i one thing that just dawned on me about value is you know i can think of of quite a few watches that i could walk into an ad and in york and or in bristol here and are incredibly good value for money but i have absolutely no desire to buy them and own them you know they you're getting so much watch for the money and i'm just thinking that would be the reason i would if that's the reason i would be buying it that's not a good enough reason you know I don't. I think I've said on, on here several times before. I don't personally own very many watches, but the watches I own, I care a lot about. And why I bought them, sometimes it's my, I mentioned about the Cradle. You know, not not Cradle, as someone said because they can't. I, I mispronounce everything. Crador. Um cradle. <laughs> Sometimes it's because you're getting that brand for this price. Obviously, it's just you, you just like it, and you're going. You know, what's powering it? No, it's when it's on the wrist. I love it. And, and as Chris just said, I mean, that's a brand I, I admire a huge amount. I've been following them with great interest because they do something so unique. And they're, you know, if you get it and you like it and you want it, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. Don't, don't you can't break a watch like that down into the screws, the rubies, you know, the steel. No, that's, that's not possible.
0: Yeah. Dave, do you do I you, you speak to a lot of brands, don't you? And you on your last podcast you were talking about Haraj. Do you find that the brands ever ask you like how do they how's best to or do you think that how they communicate value to their customers? Do you think that's a, a real burden on them or a factor?
2: Um I think certainly for a lot of startup brands, especially like micro brands we've talked about, I think a lot of them do I don't think it's necessarily a mistake, but I think a lot of them do definitely fall into the trying to produce something for almost the lowest possible price to try and eliminate that kind of barrier or point of entry. And, And my personal approach is I think that's a mistake. I think if you are thinking to yourself, okay, let's launch a brand and get this as cheap as we possibly can to try and get volume in the market, You're better off actually doing your homework, working out what does this actually cost us? And if I want to be here in a year, two years, five years, ten years, what does this product actually have to sell for to be a commercially viable product? And then position the product into the marketplace at that point there and then. And you may sell a lot less, but at least you'll actually understand what your market is and you'll make some money out of each unit as opposed to making... However, many hundreds of thousands you might sell launching it. And, you know, I think Arraj is a brand. They understand that, you know, their watches are strong value propositions, but they're not inexpensive. You know, they're still, they're, they're, their tourbillon is still a seven, 000, eight thousand pound watch, which is by no stretch of the imagination, even remotely in the cheap category. But people regard it as being inexpensive for a Turbion. But then that's also because a lot of the market have managed to leverage the idea that Tourbillon equals expensive. And there's, Tourbillon's not cheap, but Tourbillon isn't materially more expensive than many other types of watch movement. It's just that many brands have managed to get this kind of aura over a Tourbillon that a Tourbillon should cost 20 grand, 30 grand, 100 grand, whatever, when actually what effectively or as you've said is it doesn't. It's not cheap, but it can be done for less money, but they still make money in it. And also their business model, a bit like Christopher Ward, who are very open about it, their business model and route to market is a non-traditional route to market. It's not a you know, two or three level model from brand to retailer or through a distributor. Those models will always add layers of profit and price increase into it there's nothing wrong with that that's just their model but as you've done it differently as have Christopher Ward and as as have other brands but you know it's it's I think it's a difficult question but you have to set out from the start and the only advice I ever give to anyone as I say just think about what does this product actually have to be priced at to make it commercially viable don't think about now think about a year two years three years down the line yeah think about the
5: used BMW model
0: yeah, yeah. It's, it's Mark's put an interesting point there. He said, should a brand communicate value or luxury? Long-term success requires communicating luxury, I think.
2: Okay, I'll be controversial in this one. The modern world, the, when I say the modern world, the modern brands, so let's say LVMH, Richemont, Rolex, Swatch Group, et cetera, et cetera, and you know, all the other luxury fashion brands, The difference, I think, is luxury used to be defined by the consumer of the item who decided if something was luxurious. The problem now is the brands dictate to you what luxury is, and then that's dangerous because they can make any old shit they want and tell you it's luxury. And as long as they put a big price tag in it and pretend that it's luxury, people buy into that. It don't mean it is luxury. It just means that they've conned you into thinking it's luxury. You know, luxury. Most I, I I've said this, and I had a long chat in, with Adrian from Bark and Jack, for example. Rolex is not a luxury watch brand. Rolex sell watches for luxury prices, sure, but what Rolex are is Rolex are the Audi of the watch world. They consistently make a lot of very high quality product, consistently well, and it does exactly what it says in the tin. That doesn't make it luxury. They make a million watches a year. That isn't luxury. You know, luxury is usually much smaller volume, much more artisanal, much more handmade, certainly to me, than something like a Rolex is. And that's where, you know, something like what Nick makes. You know, if Nick does a piece unique for someone, that's that's a much more luxurious product than any Rolex ever is, unless Rolex do you something unique. But that's the world we live in now, you know. When you can walk into, I don't know, Balenciaga, and they'll sell you a T-shirt for six hundred million quid that says Balenciaga on it, and lasts about three three washes in a washing machine, or you can't actually even wash it or dry clean it. You can wear it once and put it in the bin. You know that's not luxury, <laughs> but that's what they—that's what people perceive luxury to be. David, yeah, like
1: a, that reminds me of something that I had lunch today in London with our good friend JJ Hughes, nineteen sixty nine, and one of the things that kept coming up in our conversation about watches and the watch industry today is sadly just how much of it is emperor's new clothes. Oh, it's just 100%. so much being coming out with a huge price tag and you kind of sat there going, but is, you know, is this brainwashing? What, what is it? Why are people looking at this going, Oh, this makes sense. And you mentioned Balenciaga. Like I, you know, I, uh, I'm not going to pretend I understand anything about, um, Uh, modern fashion, I'm very traditional in the way I dress, but there are moments, like you mentioned about the t-shirt and stuff, where you're just looking at going, this, it's not even about whether it's value for money because a t-shirt can cost $700 if it's made out of incredible materials, it's crafted, it's low production, but that's just not luxury. And I think that is, you know, going back to Mark's thing about Mark's Wheeler's comment about like, you know, should it be luxury or value? The problem, one big problem that can come if you're a brand and you focus solely on value, though, is the world constantly is changing. I mean, if you think if you set up a watch brand back in the end of 2019, your costs today are going to be about 30 to 35 percent higher than they were then. That's before we add on the exchange rate fluctuation. I mean, I was speaking to a British brand who buy nearly all of their components and watches in you in US dollar and I was talking to them the day after our then chancellor decided to you know chuck the UK off the cliff and it Mm -hmm. you know and the exchange rate completely changed and he was very very scared because suddenly he was looking at his invoices changing in pounds by amounts that could put him out of business and you're suddenly going right you have absolutely no capital reserves you know you've been running on razor thin margins because everything's about value so you know that you have not over the last two years as your costs have been skyrocketing your price has had to stay the same to compete on this value mark and you look at it and going you know that is scary that is really scary now Mm -hmm. the flip side is you shouldn't as a brand go right well we can just you know do this modern luxury world and charge whatever we you know think people will pay there is a you know, there is a fair amount and it goes to you know what people saying right at the beginning about like actually you know the cost of a watch is more than its components it's also the labor it's also you know will the business be around next year because we need to make sure we've got spare parts for it we need to develop new watches there's so much that goes into it um in terms of luxury i'm 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 with david exactly on you know luxury isn't a mass-produced product at a high price I mean, of course, as someone who runs a company that makes, you know, three hundred watches a year, of course I'm going to say that. But <laughs> for me, for for me, luxury, when I'm looking at outside of watches, looking at products, clothing, you know, um, a briefcase, flowers, whatever, it it really isn't about the price. It's about looking at much more that goes into it. Now, often that does translate into a higher a higher price point, um, but the higher price point isn't the uh, isn't isn't, should, isn't and shouldn't be the uh, defining feature of something being luxury or not. Yeah, you know,
2: I, I know, oh, I, Sorry, yeah. So, no, sorry, I was just going to say, and also, you know, just because a given material is used does not make it luxury. There's some luxurious materials, silk, say, or gold, or, you know, any of these kind of, you know, diamonds or whatever you want to name. Just because a brand uses a material that's seen as a luxury material doesn't make the product they're making out of it luxurious either. It can make yeah. it crass, sure, but it doesn't make <laughs> it luxurious. And that's yeah, another thing that people forget.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'll ask Chris a question actually, because you, I, I used to review a lot of micro brands on the show, and I know you, you sort of mix in micro brands. Do you find that that we that that YouTubers are almost being responsible for communicating the value of micro brands or, or the value of some brands because I mean I certainly felt like that you know going a lot into the detail of the components and things because I'm not sure that some micro brands are, really do communicate that well I don't know if you found that So what do you mean like 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 it's in the YouTube reviews we almost have to we almost have to talk about the value of yeah. the watch of the micro brand
4: Yeah I think that the part of that is a lot of channels really focus on value watches and your a channel like mine, I review watches from the spectrum. So I'll I'll review something that's you know considered a luxury watch, and then I'll I'll review something that's considered more of a you know a standard Omega, something that is not considered luxury, but some people will consider consider it luxury, like David was just saying. But um, when you're when you're reviewing something like a micro brand the the main selling point is the value i think a lot of the time when you're looking at something that is from the is from a brand like Zelos, their their main selling point is that they're giving you specs for the money you're not getting you're not getting a luxury product even though i think a lot of people who are buying a Zelos think that they're getting a luxury watch um which is fine you know you could think whatever you want it's it's it is it's a great watch and some of them are made in limited qual- quantities uh but the major selling point is that you're getting tons of specs for the money so you're getting a 400 hundred dollar watch and it has everything that you would expect from uh, a micro brand sometimes a little bit more you're getting very good loom and all of that and that's the selling point so you need to um it would be i think irresponsible if you're if you're doing a review of of something like a zelos um not to point out the value for money that you're you're getting but at the same time um you know it's putting to you know putting it into perspective um you know you could buy you know 10 Zellos and there are people out there who own 20 30 zelos the people are crazy about them if you go into their facebook group that person could have owned a Rolex or they could have owned a Vacheron because they've spent so much money on brand new Zelos, and they, and they also have some sort of, and again, if you go into their face, you're, I'm not trying to dog on them at all because I do like Zelos, and I, and I, I've reviewed many of them. I've owned, I've owned a bunch. I've bought a bunch. Um, but Um, they're, they're great watches, but you, you know, some can see that you're, you might be wasting your money on buying so many of the, of these little micro brands that are basically using all the same components. There's a few manufacturers that are making the cases for all these micro brands, the bracelets. So, uh, you know, owning one or two in your collection, I think is a good idea, but you know, the that's value actually, is there for someone who wants a lot of specs.
3: That's actually a really interesting point that Chris just brought up about if you sort of step back and think about how many of us and how a lot of us kind of got into the hobby and then the kinds of watches we bought and the kinds of media we consumed. And then for all the people, for at least three of the people on this call, the kinds of media creator we then became. We kind of came through that treadmill um, where, and exactly as Chris said, um, we know the movements, we know the movement prices, we know the, we know all the cases come from like three factories. We know all the bracelets come from like two. Um, you can get hold of some of the catalogs that these brands pick from. Um, and that has, again, this idea of the circularity. That's become the way people looked at collecting, it's become the way they bought the watches. It's become the way they became a YouTuber. And then they just perpetuate that cycle. And then some people hit a kind of um, escape velocity and get out of it and start looking at watches differently. And there are other people who will spend their entire watch, you know, sort of hobby life inside that circle. And it's always just specs per dollar.
5: I think there's another component there's that Pete touched on that. earlier though, too, that that is I don't know that they necessarily are in love with that watch they're really much more in love with the dopamine hit of opening the new box
2: mm-hmm. right. and yeah. or being tight and or being tied to a community or a brand or an ecosystem yeah. or whatever it is it's i think it's not any different to the Apple ecosystem. You know, people who buy into Apple are sycophantic about Apple and they will buy Apple products hey, iris- irrespective.
4: Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 I, think, <laughs> I also find Some that people-, people love to compare their, their micro brand watches to major brands, saying, Oh, I have I get I have all the same specs as that Rolex. I have micro adjust, I have screwed links, I have everything. Yeah. Again, there's nothing wrong with it. Like I said, you could stay in that realm. I know people who have, you know, a hundred different micro brands in their collection. And, you know, from someone... And I started collecting watches, you know, 20 some odd years ago, 25 years ago. When I first started out, I didn't buy a luxury watch. I didn't buy... I bought a Seiko. And then I bought another Seiko. And then I was like, wow, I really like these Seikos. And then I bought something else. It was, I think it was a Bon Mercier or something like that. And then I, and then I, it was a stepping stone. Everything's like Pete was saying, it's a stepping stone. So eventually, you know, I didn't go out and buy a Vacheron until I really understood what I was buying. And um, is, is a Vacheron physically better than a Zelos? I mean, I, 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 yes, physically it feels better, but, 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 uh, can it? Can I wear my Zelos in the yard, washing my car, playing with my kids? I could do all that. Would I do that with my Vacheron? No, I wouldn't do any of
2: that. Or the argument <laughs> yeah. is, is it, is it, is it relative to the price differential? Is it that much better?
4: No, and that's yeah. that's another thing that you we could talk about for days. I mean is a, is a $300 Zello swordfish, you know, 30 times less the watch or, you know, 10 times less the watch or whatever the price of the watch that we're talking about than a, than a Rolex. No, but then a lot of that is perception. A lot of that is brand marketing. Um, And of course it is a, a, a Rolex is a way higher quality watch in general. and, and, But these are all arguments that you could make, and and whether or not someone is right, that's a whole other conversation. But
1: a point I was just going to make on something you said, Chris. So with specs in particular, um, I think specs are very easy to kind of, kind of go. You know, it's almost like a sort of a security thing. You can go right. It's got this. These are the specs. But you know, for example, we talk about bracelets. You know, bracelets need to have screw links. Screw links, good. Pin links, bad. Handle the bracelet on a steel Nautilus with its pin links. It is one of the most beautifully engineered finished bracelets, far superior to the vast majority of screw links bracelets. Something that I know Sam and I have spoken about um, um, offline before is about ETA movements. The 2824 comes in five different grades. You know, the first two of those are not made anywhere near Switzerland. So let's let's not kid ourselves, just because it's got a 2824 doesn't mean that it's this. It all depends on what's been done to that movement, which grade of movement. We talk about steel, oh my goodness, 316L steel. 316L steel, there are so many subgrades of 316L steel, but also it comes down to where is the raw steel from? I mean, I've seen 316L steel that can be polished up to look like platinum. I've also seen some that if you touch it, you can pretty much leave a fingerprint in it. You know, it's specs, I think, and this is almost like a consumer warning, I would say, is specs are very misleading. They're very easy to hold on to because it feels like you're comparing the same thing, but it's very misleading, very misleading mm-hmm. sometimes. You know, the wood finish in a Ford Fiesta, is very different to the wood finish in a Rolls Royce, but they're both technically a wood finish dashboard now i'm very sad the fiesta is being discontinued i love the fiesta <laughs> but that aside i think it's that thing where it's going you know if you're looking at the specs yes and, and and there was a comment from from someone um which i thought was very true it's like certain price points you do expect certain things of course absolutely there are certain things you would you would expect but i think it's just be very careful if you're buying it because purely on the bang for buck the spec for the price really delve into it and go like is it exactly what i think it is and is how important is that to me or not because you know some things are going to be more important to you than others
4: that's the point though i mean i think the average consumer the difference between the the quality of stainless steel is going to be less of a factor in their purchase where they're going to they're going to look and say okay it has you know, 300 meters of water resistance. It has an NH35 or, or a Miyota 9000 series or an ETA 2824. They don't care whether or not what that grade of movement is, if it's an elaborate or if it's, you know, the run of the mill. They they have a check, you know, they have a sheet. There's some check marks on there. It has 300 meters of water resistance. Sapphire bezel, even better. Lots of loom. That's awesome. And then there's screwed links, there's micro-adjusting the bracelet. These are all things that doing... Uh, I, I, I recently did a review of a watch that I bought, which was the um, Cartier Santos ADLC. The, the amount of... <laughs> I got a lot of positive comments on the watch, and people were like, oh, it's a great watch, this, that, and the other thing. And then other people were, because of the movement, because of know and 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 again i i want to bring up this watch constantly but i got so many negative comments on this watch not based on the review that i did but they were like what's wrong with you why would you buy a watch that costs that much with and again like um it's not it's not the for me right now in my in my collecting and maybe at one point it was it's not what what specs am i getting for the dollar it's not that anymore um I don't care if a watch has 50 meters of water resistance or 300 meters of water resistance. And again, at one point in my collection journey, I was like, Oh, I want to, I want a watch with a thousand meters of water. Well, I don't need that. I don't, I don't even, I don't even, I barely, when I go to the beach, I, I take my shoes off and, and put my ankles in the water maybe. But the thing is, is that, I mean, 904 versus 316L, you know, that's something that people they, they'll freak out when the watch is made out of 904L stainless steel, because it's like Rolex. It doesn't matter doesn't matter. The corrosion, you're not going to be you're not going to be in the sewers, you know, fixing plumbing and and and, and there's it's not going to be there's not going to be acid rain. You don't have to worry about these things. 316L stainless steel and pretty much any any grade. And, and I agree with what you're saying. There is definitely different grades of of steel. But again, the average consumer, the person who doesn't know that much about it is not going to care. They're going to just be like, it's got all those specs. It's made out of stainless steel. This is a watch for me. And, and if the price is right. And then immediately when you go into that thousand dollar range, when it goes over that thousand dollar price tag, these things start mattering more, I think. And it all depends on the consumer and how educated that consumer is. Anyway, guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean to join and then leave. I do have to leave though. I have family over. And I just saw you guys on. I, I, I appreciate it. Maybe I could join again in the future. I, I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah.
3: Cheers, Chris. Big Chris. Yeah.
4: Cheers.
0: Okay.
4: Cool. Yeah. That,
3: that point that Nicholas brought up about how we get swept up on the idea of some spec has to be better, even a totally different environment where much, much bigger numbers were involved. I was involved in a massive project rolling out all sorts of new rail infrastructure. And what you had was two options, one clearly superior in every way to the other, but the other was far more expensive. And the people that were proposing that ran a really good marketing campaign amongst local communities saying, pressure your politicians to make sure you get our system, because if you don't get our system, you're being shortchanged. And so people are paying massively over the odds for incredibly inferior systems, um, because they felt that the cheap one had to be cheap, and that they were somehow being ripped off. So you got the paradox that the poor suburbs mm. that didn't have the kind of you know marketing power have got infinitely superior solutions for. Um, in this particular case, it's how to get rid of rail, um, how to get rid of um, uh, crossings, rail crossings on roads. Yeah, the poorer your suburb, the better your answer. Mm. And...
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, well, we're nearly at the end, but is there any final points on this? It's been a fascinating discussion. It definitely went in a, different, a lot of different directions, which was really cool. <laughs>
3: Uh, I would say that Nicholas has cost me at least three months of my life um, doing a whole <laughs> bunch of research I can't use. Um, uh, we had a conversation a couple of, probably a year or so ago, and Nicholas made a comment to me that you can tell if you're in the industry for long enough, you can begin to see these differences between ostensibly the same steels. Um And I spent months, A, every metallurgist I spoke to actually completely agrees with you. None will go on the record and say it. Um, And it's this whole, it's, and so I said, I did all this research that I just can't use. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Steel is not steel, is not steel. And then the next thing is what you do with that steel, even if you have identical even if you do buy exactly the same steel from someone else depending on how you treat it and how you machine it and how you might you might forge it before and work harder before you do the milling you can transform the material properties of that theoretically 360 steel so mm-hmm. yeah that whole that whole spec chasing is the reason i i've put a line under i don't review micro brands or anything like that anymore i just polite no to anyone who wants that because it's just a way I don't like I don't even like looking at watches that way
0: yeah no that's a great point and I'll 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 leave on this that if the value of a watch is is monetary like how much it's gone up in value the most valuable watch that I ever owned was an Invicta Pro Diver because I made a video on how to adjust the bracelet and it still consistently gets the most views out of any video <laughs> I have ever That Invicta Pro Diver is worth to me in excess of $2,000 with the Google ad revenue up to this. <laughs> uh, it, to, it's funny because to 300- over 350,000 people, I am the guy that makes videos on Invicta Pro Diver bracelets.
2: <laughs> and I'm cool with it. <laughs> so, I know. And- uh, I know. And you're absolutely right, Pete. At that point, uh, my father's a civil engineer and he's often told me tales of, you can go to five suppliers in different parts of the world and order exactly the same thing. And if you want to build a bridge out of three of them, don't ever use the bridge. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh Awesome, that's a great point. All right, well, thanks everyone on the panel for joining me and thank you everyone who was very active in the comments. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, thanks everyone. Bye. Okay.
2: Take care.